Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. All right, Travis and Michael here on Nothing Impossible. And Michael, we are, we're talking about a few different things today, two of which involve money. Yeah, we, we get into local innovation, technology, new ways of approaching things. So first of all, we'll take a trip to the White House where a St. Louis startup was making their presentation, presenting their product as part of a, a showcase of uh, small businesses from all 50 states. And it's, uh, it's always fun, especially, I guess, during this administration to hear about uh, events at the White House. I wouldn't say yeah, fun. What was that like? I don't think I won't say it's always fun to talk about the events of the White House, but it's always interesting. And so we have firsthand knowledge of a local entrepreneur who uh, went and did a bit of show and tell with the president of the United States. And then we're going to go to the bank and cash a check, but it's not going to be the way that you usually encounter a bank branch. Commerce Bank is getting rid of the tellers. That's not a blanket statement, but they are testing a new branch in the Central West End where you can make an appointment with the banker, but otherwise it's video conferencing, ATMs, it's all about the tech. Well, I think they are getting rid of the limitations of bankers' hours, right? Of what we used to know as the branch being open eight to four. So if I need a car loan, I work at Barnes, I'm a shift worker, like 8 p.m. is the only time I can do it. Well, this bank branch is for you. Yeah, and then we're going to, uh, so that's talking about uh, the banking industry, but we're also going to wrap up the show talking to Emily Lowe's Bush uh, from Arch Grants, and they were a recipient of a very large, uh, fairly large, uh, federal grant that's helping build out the innovation ecosystem and community here in St. Louis. Yeah, Arch Grants is the organization that gives out these these equity-free grants, so they're not taking any ownership of your company. They're just saying, move to St. Louis and we'll give you $50,000 and hook you up with all the smart people. It'll be great. And so... Or we should also say, or stay in St. Louis, and we'll hook you up with all the smart people. A lot of them are St. Louis-based ones that uh, have the incentive to stick around because of Arch Grants. Also, we should say, we're going to talk with Arch Grants about this grant, but St. Louis was the only area to have two organizations get grants, and BioGenerator from, uh, from BioSTL was the other one. Yeah, and there's just ongoing development uh, throughout the entire region, and, and we get to talk about it here on Nothing Impossible. Yeah, so let's take a break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about snake bite at the White House. That's a great headline. Stick around. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. Michael and Travis with you, and uh, ask this question as we called our next guest. Uh, do we have to play Hail to the Chief? Is the introduction for Kevin Kelly from now on? That's my version of Hail to the Chief. St. Louis small business owner who was at the White House recently to yeah. meet the president, I suppose. And well, we'll let you explain what this was all about. Kevin Kelly from Snakebite is with us on KMOX. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, guys. Um, yeah, so it was pretty out of left field. It was just an email one day, and uh, it said, we'd like you to join us at the White House for the Made in America product showcase. And I uh, was a little groggy, and I'm like, this has got to be spam. 
So I Googled the name and I looked up the email address. I'm like, oh my God, this is real. And I proceeded to call the phone number and verify that this was in fact happening. Uh, so that was about a month ago, uh, a little over a month ago. And so I didn't have much time. I had to uh, figure out a backdrop, figure out a booth situation, ship it all there, and then show up, uh, I guess, last weekend, or, well, no, a week and a half ago to the White House to set up and then have the event last Monday. Well, and I, I can imagine it's probably not easy to get snakebite uh, products through TSA. It actually is because they're TSA approved. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Perfect. Good to know. Yeah, but when you're talking about White House security, that's a whole different animal. So I was, uh, I had to ship all the beer and Diet Coke as well that I was using as a uh, sample for the president. And I wasn't sure what was going to make it, but everything was there waiting for me right when we got to the White House. So I was pleasantly surprised. So what was the event like? Was it uh, all of the different states were all exhibiting their products? And then did the president kind of walk around or uh, what was the event? Uh, how did it play out? Well, that's yeah, that's interesting. So it was 50 companies um, from each of the states and two representatives from each company. And we didn't really have a whole schedule of what was going on. It was kind of uh, just show up and be there and we'll go from there. So we're there and we're just hanging out. And, you know, no, the president was supposed to come through. You'd hear murmurs of that happening, but it never happened. Uh, but then all of a sudden, 20 cameras and people with microphones and everything came into our room. And uh, the vice president came through with um, this guy, Wilbur Ross, who is, I believe, the secretary of commerce. I could be wrong on that, though. And, you know, it was just a whole bunch of hoopla, lots of stuff going on. And eventually we were led outside to the lawn. And then that's when Trump came through and did his whole walkthrough and standing on a boat and checking out the giant missiles and, you know, talking about the companies and then making some remarks. <laughs> what uh, what was the reception like? Did people uh, like what they saw with Snakebite? Um, you know, how did how did you get along with your peers from other states? Yeah, so it went great. I mean, I was definitely probably one of the smaller companies there. So I kind of looked at it as an opportunity to be a little bit of performance art. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. to speak. so uh, my backdrop and booth was based off of the press briefing room. And I sent in flags and a podium um, and a blue backdrop because I just wanted to be there to answer questions from the press. <laughs> uh, and so everybody kind of was chuckling. They got it. I wore an American flag suit to really, uh, uh, you know, dress for the administration, so to speak. And uh, everybody was very nice, you know, that nobody thought we were uh, disrespectful or anything. We were just having a great time and no negative experiences, honestly. Yeah, that American uh, flag seemed like it really grabbed people's attention. It did. It did, you know, and uh, <laughs> it was a wise choice for sure. Um, it got us to sit on the front row of the, of the White House lawn during the event and then I got a shout out from uh, from the businessman himself. <laughs> now, uh, how are how are things going with Snakebite? Uh, any new products in development, or uh, how how's it being received overall? Yeah, you know, I mean, we kind of we kind of ride this thin line. It's um, you know, I have customers from all over the political spectrum, all over the country, all over the world, and I'm just trying to really get the message across of having a good time, enjoying life, enjoying the weekends, enjoying happy hours. Uh, the next product I have in development is actually a snake bite uh, that's going to benefit first responders. 
So it's going to be more of a uh, military green, drab green. And we've been working with this organization out of Kansas City called Warriors Ascent. And they're kind of, um, I guess you'd say, a more liberal-minded PTSD program. They kind of incorporate mind, body, and soul, like yoga. They do art. They also do, like, um, ropes courses and that kind of thing. But the message behind what they do I just thought was really cool and on point with what I'm interested in as well. Yeah, bring us back a little bit, Kevin, and uh, introduce us for those who haven't heard about it, who haven't sure. used it. What is Snakebite, and uh, how did yes. you get into being an entrepreneur like this? Well, right on. Um, I, I'm trying to remember the last time I was talking to you guys. I think it was about four years ago. Oh, has it been that long? Of, I think so. <laughs> We've been on the yeah, air that long, Travis. That, that's, I, I'm impressed with us. <laughs> Go ahead, Kevin. <laughs> We started uh, five years ago, and it was crowdfunded on Kickstarter. And it was just kind of a little homage to our grandpa's bottle openers, um, just with a little more uh, edge to it. You know, we, we put two fangs on a church key instead of one, and we were able to patent that, especially with the leather wrap that goes around it as well. So we kind of customized that for different companies or, or uh, beer brands. And uh, it was very successful. We funded in 30 hours, and then we had the bartender tool about two or three years later, and that funded in 11 hours. So we saw that it kind of was catching on. Like, I just wanted to make something that was a another uh, entry in the weird pantheon of St. Louis culture, along with toasted rabs and, and custard and all those kind of things. And uh, it kind of went beyond St. Louis, thankfully. <laughs> And and now, how long have you been in and doing Snakebite? When did this start again? Five years ago. Five years, Yeah, okay. we started up 2014 uh, with that Kickstarter and then been going strong ever since and just trying to, uh, it, it's, you know, it's hard to run a business like this. It's not the only thing that I do. Um, and so it's just, it, it's, uh, it takes a lot of time and effort to make something that I know people enjoy um, because we just hear back from them pretty constantly. So, yeah, I've enjoyed doing it, and I think that's kind of key to the success of the business and this whole thing that just happened is I just kind of roll with it and have fun with it and take whatever options uh, are presented to me. You mentioned Kickstarter. I think that's a question a lot of companies have as they grow is, do we do, do, we do a loan? Do we look for investors? Do we do something sure. like a Kickstarter crowdfunding? Uh, and there are a lot of new options out there, too. We've talked about Invested, the new you know, public uh, crowdfunding where you get equity. But how did you decide to go with Kickstarter? And what was that experience like for somebody who's not done it before? Sure. So back then, five years ago, it was kind of a no-brainer. I think it was just Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Um, I know Wellbeing Brewing recently got funded on the uh, Invested platform, which was made in St. Louis. Um but at that time, it was, you know, this is just what you do. And it's basically an immediate marketing campaign. You put out your product, you, you kind of, you know, open up all the secret uh, chest and show everything what's go show everyone what's going on. And if people are behind the idea, if they like it, then it's going to work. Uh, but there also has to be something like a, a little, I don't know how you say, a little charisma or a little bit of... Um, desirability in what you do. And I think a lot of times uh, with Kickstarter campaigns, your own want and desire to have your product succeed doesn't necessarily translate to people also wanting it to succeed. So it is a gamble in a way for sure, uh, but it's proved to be beneficial for us on each of the products that we've released through there. And now how can people get 
uh, Snakebite? Is it uh, available just online or is it at retailers? It is at retailers, um, but the easiest way is snakebiteco.com. We have free shipping, so it's kind of a no-brainer. You mm-hmm. don't have to leave your house. Um, we are trying to get in with more retailers, but again, that's a whole, it's a long uh, relationship building thing, and it, it just takes a lot of time and energy to do that. And it's it's hard when you're getting direct orders from your website all the time. So, yeah, snakebiteco.com is the easiest way to do it, and uh, I hope you check it out. <laughs> Kevin Kelly from Snakebite. (laughs) Hope everybody's saluting. Thanks, Kevin, and uh, good luck with all the follow-up. It looks like your phone's been kind of busy in the aftermath of the White House. Just a bit, yeah, with equal amounts of love and hate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kevin Kelly from Snakebite, thanks again for calling in, and uh, good luck in the future. Thank you, guys. And we'll continue with Nothing Impossible right after this. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. Michael and Travis with you, and let's take a trip to the banks, shall we? We have to stand in line? I don't know. The banks, everything is changing. Retail's changing. The way that we, you know, interact at brick and mortar is changing. So who knows what the bank branch of the future will look like? Actually, I bet there's one person who does know. I think Daryl will know. Daryl Collins is the executive vice president of Retail Market. Uh, He's the retail market director at Commerce Bank. And, Daryl, thanks for joining us on Nothing Impossible. Yeah, thanks, Travis and Michael. Glad to be here. So explain to us what you're doing in the Central West End. This is uh, kind of a glimpse, I guess, at what banking in the future is going to look like. Yeah, I think that's that's a great statement. Uh, well, you, you've probably realized on this journey uh, a lot of how the way the customers interact with financial institutions has continued to evolve. You yeah. talked about the digital influence on retail overall. Well, that certainly has not uh, escaped the banking world. So as we move forward, we listen to our customers and our employees, and we're constantly trying to incorporate a mix of digital solutions along with personal interactions. So we already offer a variety of touch points in what people are familiar with, traditional things like branches, ATMs, online, mobile, and our customer care center. This is just another part of our evolution and a different way to engage with customers. And so how do you describe uh, what this is going to be? Uh, I guess we can say that it's a tellerless branch, or how would you describe it? Yeah, that's fair. So, uh, again, what we try to evolve, we listen to customers. People want to they want to bank on their own times, right? And so we've discovered for years, banks were an on-demand sort of business, right? We're there at certain times, and when you come in, sometimes we have the expertise you need, sometimes we don't. So this is an evolution that says, you know what, we want customers to be able to interact with us when they want and the way that they want. So this location, uh, it has a, um, it'll have a very bright vestibule uh, and give you 24-hour access to our smart ATM, Uh, And then secondarily beyond that, it'll have appointment setting capability, uh, which is new for us. And that will allow people to say, you know what, maybe I work at the medical center and I'd like to talk to somebody about a mortgage at 6 o'clock on Thursday. Set that appointment and we will be prepared to meet you there. You You wouldn't have to wait. You wouldn't have to sort of hope or guess that the right people might be there. Well, this is really redefining bankers' hours then. I mean, it's not just the, the 9 to 4 window. It's really, like you said, Daryl, being available for your customers when they have the need. Yeah, absolutely. And the, other, the neat thing about the smart ATM, we're going to start testing, too, this sort of video access capability. 
So um, you're in the vestibule and you're using the ATM in a traditional sense and you go, you know what, I've got another question or a little thing I might be like a little more information on. You'll be able to talk to one of our uh, representatives at our customer care center from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Friday as an additional level of access. So, yeah, bankers' hours are quickly slipping away. You know, this kind of reminds me when you mentioned the uh, video conferencing and high-speed Internet that's going to be there. Kind of reminds me of when we hear from health companies, Mercy has the biggest or one of the first uh, virtual care and telemedicine, centers right. and telemedicine right. in the country right here in the St. Louis area. And so many other industries, I think really it's been centered around medical, but fin- perhaps the financial industry is the next to really take advantage of video conferencing and high bandwidth to extend the reach of, uh, of their human capital. Yeah, that's right. The same thing. How do, you get, how do you get customers, or in that case patients, connected with the expertise that they need, right? Because the, the experts can't be everywhere. So um, clearly, yeah, combining this technology um, and the human connection, we kind of like to say we're combining the technology you expect with the human connection you deserve. I was uh, I, I had a brief career in banking back at the turn of the century, I like to say, uh, but it was right when online banking was was being rolled out. And I remember how the, how difficult that was uh, when it comes to customer adoption, because it was so different, uh, you know, paying bills online versus writing a check and putting it in your mailbox. What kind of research have you done? You said you've listened to your customers and your employees. What is it that they're saying that really uh, lets us believe that this is the next iteration, the next generation of banking? Yeah, so a great question. So uh, sort of on this journey, uh, we think back, one of the earliest things we did was back in our Vandeventer location uh, about four or five years ago. Uh, we had heard from customers that they wanted, they wanted environments that were more welcoming. They wanted environments that were a little less intimidating. So our first four into that was our uh, Vandeventer location, which we're still very proud of. We had dubbed that branch of the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have invested since then. Uh, we've taken what we learned there. And we uh, remodeled our Metropolitan Square location. We took what we learned from there. We have since invested in our Natural Bridge location. Uh, We just remodeled our Clayton location. Every time we do this, we learn a little bit more. Uh, Again, not only from from, um, customers, but employees, too, finding environments that they feel like they can be most productive in. So, again, it's a little bit – it's more about that welcoming uh, idea Um, You know, going to a bank doesn't have to feel like a bank. That's what we keep hearing from people. Now, I was I'm curious, as people are using the uh, the appointment setting tool, uh, that is giving you a lot of good consumer and customer insights as to uh, time of day and their interest and what their flexibility uh, in their schedules might be. Uh, Are banks really becoming big data companies and finding ways to continue to create products and services based on customer behaviors that you're that you're observing yeah clearly that's uh, uh, in response to that that's how we figure out what people prefer right um when do people like to use atms and what do they do when do they like to use bank lobbies and what do they do when they're there when do they go online when do they use their mobile devices all of those things now that is a lot of data that we are still in the early stages of being able to understand uh, completely, but clearly there's things that we have used from that, yeah, to say here's what people like to do and when. And this this new appointment setting, this will be a new feature for us. So you're right, it'll be the same idea. It helps us understand when do people, what do people want to do, and when do they want to do it. And that helps us respond and build, you know, build systems and things that help them do that. We're talking with Daryl Collins, who's the executive vice president in charge of the retail market at Commerce Bank. 
And, uh, you know, we look at uh, retail and they're, they're di- different levels of, uh, you know, you've got the Walmart, the Walmart Supercenter, the Walmart Neighborhood Market, City Targets. They're not all the same, and they're they're based on what's best for the specific neighborhood. Is this a situation where Commerce Bank is going to have maybe different tiers of, uh, you know, what works in Chesterfield with a drive through might not work in Clayton, which might not work in South City versus the Central West End? Could there be different tiers of different Commerce Banks that we see in the future? Well, yeah, I think uh, uh, since Commerce sees itself as a super community bank, we are very community driven. So I can certainly envision as we move forward, you're seeing a little bit of this uh, with with competitors, excuse me. uh, And we're no different in that trying to understand the best way to deliver service in one market may not be ideal in another. So, yeah, sort of different versions of what, uh, what appeals to customers in certain areas. Uh, could certainly make for a bit of, yeah, a bit of customization, if you will, uh, in how we deliver. But it's all in. Uh, I think the whole industry is still in a in a stage of learning. Now, Daryl, I, I do want to ask a question about um, human capital, as as Michael mentioned. Uh, what does this? What impact does this have on workforce and the skills that you that the bank might be looking for in the future versus the skills that a bank teller might have needed in the in the past? Yeah, well, I think we're we're clearly in an era in banking where we're continuing to professionalize and upskill. Uh, again, like a lot of retail, you you guys pointed it out earlier on, a lot of those routine kinds of things, repetitive tasks, things that people want to do sort of 24 hours a day or on their own terms can are, are continuing to be moved into digital. Um, I mean, you think about customer uh, contact centers years ago, uh, the, the biggest reason people called around the turn of the century that you referenced uh, <laughs> around 2000 was was to find out how to check cleared or what's my balance. That's why we built those centers is to pull those calls out of out of branches. And now that all those things have gone away, people have found a much more effective and efficient ways to find out that sort of information. So we're finding as transactions continue to decline. Um, when people are coming to the branches, more and more they're coming for things that are a little more involved and a little more sophisticated. And, and so we are continuing to skill up our workforce so that we can respond to kind of this next level of what, what we need to do to respond to customers. It's funny you mentioned, uh, that, again, reference back to the turn of the century. I remember when I was in banking, it was the third of the month is when the phones would ring. Uh, and it was all of our senior clients asking if their Social Security had been electronically deposited into their account. Yes. Uh, and that was a lot of that was a lot of, uh, you know, phone traffic and a flow into the branch that could be removed or with the advent of online banking that could be checked by the consumer themselves. Um, so that I do see that that's a, it's an interesting parallel. Now your location is very interesting. It's in, um, it's in the central West end. It's in the same building as Shake Shack. It's where all that new developments going on. Uh, why that location? What is it about the demographics around that location that makes you think this is a place to pilot this and launch this? Uh, yeah, well, even as far back as when we did rebuild our Vandeventer location four and five years ago, we've always had, I mean, you've got exciting things happening with Cortex. You've clearly got the medical campus, uh, and you've just got this great momentum uh, that's taking place in the Central West End. So it had always been a place we felt like we needed a presence for customers and for prospects. Uh, and, boy, the timing just worked out um, with this particular project, um, for us to be able to take advantage of 
what we think is just great timing and a great positioning in the Central West End. Again, we're talking with Daryl Collins, the Executive Vice President for Retail Market at Commerce Bank. And, you know, we do interviews with, uh, you know, innovators who are working in this space. And, you know, we talked with, for instance, Chase doing their online bank or another St. Louis bank that wants to go online only. And uh, when it comes to the innovation in this space, where would you say Commerce Bank fits in? And when it comes to especially looking at real estate like this and new ways of doing the physical branches, uh, is this unprecedented in the, the banking industry? I guess talk about uh, Commerce Bank being on the cutting edge of innovation with this. Uh, yeah, we uh, sometimes banks have not been considered very innovative, uh, but we've been very excited over the last few years. We think we've done lots of things that are innovative, and this is another, another part of that journey. So, again, continuing to evaluate, expand uh, our options of how customers interact with us, we have to start to think differently. Um, you know, we, we, we think about branches and ATMs and mobile and all those, but we've got to start to respond even more than we ever have to the customer. Uh, we, we like to say that we're here, we're here to navigate financial complexities, uh, and that's our job so our customers can focus on what matters most in their lives. And so, again, thinking about physical environments and mobile and all these things is, is um is clearly putting us in an innovative mindset these days more than ever. Well, Daryl, you mentioned um, that uh, banks as an industry aren't that aren't, aren't always known as being that innovative. I would imagine it's because it's a heavily regulated industry itself where it's, it's difficult to take that much risk, and innovation always involves risk, to take that much risk and innovate in a heavily regulated environment. And you're so blocked in with, for instance, ACH transfers and stuff like just the banking system, I imagine, also puts a lot of restrictions on what you can do. Right. Yeah, there's put a lot of structure, um, a lot of guardrails around what we do. Uh, but there's, there's ways, part of it is we, you know, banking in its kind of essence hasn't changed in kind of a hundred years. So if you think back to the biggest innovation that came along that started to change the consumer was the iPhone, right? So the iPhone comes out in 2007 combined with the, the last great recession and now, over the next years after that, you really start seeing consumers act differently based on sort of that smartphone technology. Everybody's life changed. The way we communicated, the way we did business, the way we learned things, everything started to change. Uh, and so, even though, yeah, even though we've got those kind of constraints you guys described, they're really our opportunity for us to think differently. Again, really sitting down and sincerely putting the customer at the center of things and saying, what do people want? How do they want to do it? And how, how can we take friction out of those things? And how can we make their lives easier? Well, it's just, it's really uh, odd to think back about all the innovations that have happened in banking from the ATM machine. Usually, I think that was right around the late seventies, early eighties to online banking to now these uh, almost automated br branches themselves. So uh, Daryl, before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you about the crystal ball. What, I know you're rolling this out, but what do you think is next for your industry? Well, I think you'll continue to see a reduced reliance on cash. There will always be needs for cash, but we're continuing to see that decline. Uh, consumers are moving more and more towards real time. So people want things and expect things to happen quicker. So the banking industry has to sort of catch up with that. Things don't kind of happen in real time. Some of them do and some of them don't. So you'll continue to see a move towards that. Um, 
But beyond that, what I think is, is fascinating and what we're, what we're betting on uh, is that um, people will embrace technology and they'll continue using things, and we're going to be right there. But when they, there are, are, are several things that they're still going to want that human, human connection for. And so what we're going to continue to innovate is how do, we, how do we connect customers with what they need and who they need with the right expert. I think that's what you're going to see continue to innovate mostly. All right. Well, thank you so much, Daryl Collins, Executive Vice President, Retail Market Director for Commerce Bank. And friends, go check it out. It's over in Central West End. Uh, use the fancy new smart ATM and set an appointment if you need to. Daryl, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thanks for the opportunity. And we'll be right back to talk with Emily Lowe's Bush from Arch Grants about their successes and some exciting news. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. All right, I'm going to ask, ask our next guest for a small loan of $750,000, but I don't think she'll give it to me. But we are <laughs> going to talk with Emily Lowesbush, the executive director from Arch Grants, about this new grant that they just got from the federal government. Emily, thanks for joining us. Oh, happy to. So uh, you got some money. Yeah. <laughs> And it's good. We have the, we have the, at this point, we have the promise of some money. <laughs> yes, uh, and it's good. So uh, talk a little about this this uh, federal grant. I believe it's called the I-6 grant that was very competitive, and Arch Grants was a recipient. Yeah, so this is, this is the first, um, first year that we've applied. I think once in the past before I started, we had looked at something like this. Um, but we uh, we found out about this opportunity. I know a couple of our partner organizations in, in St. Louis have received it in the past, um, and it seemed like the the right time. The grants really focused on it's through the RISC program, which is the regional innovation uh, strategy. So it's around building local ecosystems um, and building innovative solutions. So seems like a pretty good fit for what we do. Um, it's a matching grant, which is wonderful because so in order to apply we had to secure the the matching funds for the full 750 so the exciting thing about that is it represents for our organization actually 1.5 million dollars over the next three three years um half of which is provided by local uh donors and half of which is provided by the government and emily just for context i guess how much money do you give away to startups to get them to come to or stay in St. Louis each year? Yeah. So we we give out about a million dollars each year to to 20 companies. Um, and, you know, obviously hope to be able to increase that in the coming years. But um, this part of what we are excited about with this grant is not only the ability to potentially provide more grants to, to our companies, but also what we recognized is that we are now at the point where we've got uh, about 97 of our companies. We funded 134 companies over the last seven years. 97 of them are still active in the St. Louis region. And so we've got this incredible cohort of companies that are two, three, four, five years old that we need to really build out a more robust support system for. And so a lot of the um, activities included in this grant proposal were around how do we transform what we do from a competition and then some kind of um, more informal and um, and ad hoc connections to a true dynamic, what we're calling a dynamic nesting environment that we're building for entrepreneurs to not only start up, but to scale their companies here in St. Louis. And how difficult is that scaling phase? It's, it's one thing for, a, for an idea to get off the ground, but what does it take for these ideas to become, you know, the, the next big thing? 
Yeah. So for us, what we did in in, prep, in preparing for not only this grant, but just how we're going to build this robust um, uh, nesting environment that, we, that we've been talking about, we did a lot of surveying of our past recipients, a lot of looking back through. So we meet with our companies every three months, um, get their feedback on, on what their pain points are. And it really boils down to there's three main things that seem to be the potential pain points, but also the huge indicators of growth and success for these companies. And that is, number one, the um, access to follow-on capital. So um, at, you know, most of the companies we fund are somewhere between idea, seed, summer, or just pre-A, but um, they usually pretty immediately need another infusion of capital. And then as they scale um, more and more. So that's number one. The second is access to talent. So how are they finding the people to hire? How are they finding the people to grow? And how are they recognizing when that pivot point is, when maybe they they need a CEO or they need a COO to come on and help um, where it's not the founder that can't take on the same responsibilities as he or she did in the past. And then the third is really focused on customer acquisition, so pilots. We hear a lot about the openness of corporations and companies and, and CEOs in St. Louis to meet with our founders and talk to them and advise them and mentor them. But how do we make that pivot from um, kind of not just advising and supporting and cheering on, but pilots? How do we get our companies into these, these, um, these corporations, which just gives them that proof of concept that means they can take it out to a larger and broader audience. So all of the things that we're focusing on in some way, um, lead back up to one of those three key indicators. Yeah, and when it comes to, um, I mean, three quarters of the companies uh, surviving is is a great number. But even those that the companies that don't survive, one of the big goals of Arch Grants is to get these dynamic people to come here and then become leaders, whether they're in the company that they originally came with or not. Exactly, and that's, I mean, and that's we what we're starting to see, and what's exciting for this year is. Um, we're starting to see a lot of the companies that, um, number one, uh, some, uh, some of the companies that we've funded are starting to exit. We saw that with Prattle a couple months ago um, and hopefully might have a couple more before the end of the year. And um, so there's situations like that. There's other situations where the company just didn't work out. And we are just as supportive of those founders as we were um, when they when they started their first company. We've had seven of our founders go on to found a second company and do it in St. Louis. So for us, that's just as much of a win. Right, because it is about that talent. And you mentioned that uh, one of the needs that the startups have is access to talent. And I guess part of the closest network of talent that's available to them are other Arch Grants companies. So if a, if a company or an idea doesn't work out, they could be maybe absorbed or join uh, the next generation or another batch of Arch Grants. Absolutely. And and that's the thing that I think what we're trying to make sure that not only the startup ecosystem, but the, the general tech ecosystem here in St. Louis is aware of is that, um, and it may just be almost a, um, a landing point for a, a, a short amount of time while they get their next idea off the ground and, um, but need to you know, have some sort of steady income or that they're not, that they're their company is in kind of a, a quiet phase and they're willing to put their talents and expertise towards something else. So to have more of that openness toward who can I help and who needs help. And we've had some great examples, even with this most recent cohort of founders working with one another, um, structuring some really interesting deals where 
they, um, as an in an advisory role, will take a very small percentage. But I think we're going to see more and more of that, especially as we start having companies that are, you know, that are that are at those high revenue numbers and have more and more employees and, and want to start giving back. Emily, it seems like every new crop or new every new class of Arch Grants, there's at least one or two articles written by an Arch Grants recipient that is titled, I move from insert coastal city to St. Louis and here's why. Uh, or we see Steve Case continuing to do his Rise of the Rest tour and talk about the middle of America and the great opportunities here. What is it that you are hearing from the startups that are not necessarily the ones that are here or from here, but the ones that are attracted here? What are they, what, are, what praises are they singing about St. Louis and this ecosystem? System. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the thing that they're most surprised by in most cases is how robust the ecosystem is. Mm-hmm. I think um, while I did mention, you know, some of the potential pain points, things like talent, but I mean, that is not that's not unique to St. Louis. No, talent, uh, talent is a need everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and there's different issues, right? In the, on the coast, there's a lot of talent, but there's also huge um, they're requesting huge pay, you know, huge, uh, huge salaries, all those types. I mean, there's just different, there's different issues depending on where you are. And so in terms of the other side of that, definitely how robust the ecosystem is. We hear that all the time. I think the, um, the general kind of just uh, cohort mentality of startups here is really important. And what we want to make sure we don't lose as the ecosystem continues to mature and become more robust is that idea that, there's still a feeling of um, camaraderie and and the cohort. It might not be every startup knows every other founder, but it may be that we start doing a better job of connecting um, founders in a specific industry or um, uh, women-led companies or founders of color or different. There's different ways that we can start to really create mechanisms for different startups to still connect in a meaningful way, because what we hear time and time again is that that it can be so isolating. And that is a really important part of it that is provided by places like T-Rex and Kovo and uh, CIC and all the different kind of different areas. But that also needs to just happen organically within the within the startup founders. Well, Emily, just about 30 seconds left. Uh, Remind us uh, what this I-6 challenge grant is going to go to. And then also throw in a plug for the next Arch Grants application period. Yeah, we'll absolutely do that. So uh, this the grant is titled Ignite St. Louis, Fostering an Entrepreneurial Environment in America's Heartland. And it's really focused on how we're going to build a dynamic nesting environment for, start, for startups to not only start here, but scale here, stay and succeed. Um, and our next cohort, actually, we're in the finalists. Our finalist pitch day is coming up in just a couple of weeks. Um, so I will instead pivot and, and plug our gala, which is November 1st this year, um, and will be a very, as it always is, a very exciting celebration of entrepreneurship in St. Louis. Emily Lowes-Bush, Executive Director of Arch Grants. Congratulations. And we should also mention that uh, Arch Grants wasn't the only recipient, local recipient of the I-6 uh, grant. BioGenerator, uh, part of BioSTL, also got a $750,000 grant. So that's great uh, federal dollars coming to the local area to continue to build out uh, the ecosystem. Emily, congratulations and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for joining us this week on Nothing Impossible. Tune in next week. We'll talk more innovation, entrepreneurship in St. Louis. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. 